Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, Christ died in weakness. So can Christians use power? That's something we're going to talk about today. I also want to get to some of your questions. One of the questions that you've asked is, how do you deal with scoffers? There's a lot of scoffers on the internet. How do you deal with them? Also, how can I actually respect my parents if they're not Christians and they have values that I don't agree with as a Christian, how can I still respect them? We're going to try and get into that. But before we do, I want to read some mail I got based on or from last week's podcast and radio program where we talked about how the world has gone mad and why is it gone mad? And we said, I'll just review it briefly, we were trying to answer the question, why do we have these super extreme, even mad positions that people have taken publicly in recent years? I mean, how did we go from safe, legal, and rare abortion to now the government is paying for your abortion, or from safe, legal, and rare abortion to shout your abortion, or from safe, safe, legal, and rare to now we're going to celebrate abortion by making it legal right up to the point of birth, and even now, in California anyway, and in Maryland and Colorado, we have laws that even allow you to kill your child after birth. In fact, AB 2223 in California says, you can't investigate an infant death if they died within 28 days of birth. And if you do investigate it, you might be prosecuted. I'm not making this up. Okay, we talked about this last week. And I said that these extremes can be summed up in one word, rebellion. This is not mere disagreement, but rebellion against God and his moral law expressed in conscience. And we said, when you suppress your conscience, when you rebel against your conscience and try and hold down the truth, it takes a lot of work. Because when you hold down your conscience, it doesn't get more docile, it gets more violent. We use the analogy that Dr. J. Budzieszewski used. He said, if you try and push down the head of a lion or to push down the head of a wildcat, it's not going to get more docile. It's going to get more violent. So you're getting these violent responses. Even this week, a, a pro-life place uh, was firebombed by a pro-abortion group in Wisconsin. You're getting violence where people aren't saying, well, abortion is a tragic thing, but I want a right to have it too. I'm going to celebrate it. I want more of it. I want everyone to have it. And we explained why last week. So I, I, don't, I can't go through the whole podcast. That wouldn't be... Uh, a good use of our time. Just listen to last week's podcast uh, called Why Has the World Gone Mad? But I got a letter uh, on this from Matt in Iowa I want to read to you. It's not very long. You may not agree with it all, but I think he has a point. Here's what he says. Frank, I never miss a podcast. The answer to why has the world gone mad is this. The uptake we've seen in the last couple of years hasn't revealed that the world has gone mad. It's revealed that the world has become emboldened by the church's apathy. 
the spirit of the age smells weakness. How many times have pastors and other leaders said something like, for far too long the church stood by on prayer in schools, on same-sex marriage, etc.? We've heard it. Sometimes pastors and other leaders say the moral decay decay in society is the church's fault for not being bold. Of course, I've said that myself. If if you're worried about the culture, I'm talking, it's me now, not not Matt from Iowa. If, If you're really concerned about where the culture has been, you can put the blame largely at the doorstep of the church because the church has not been salt and light. The church hasn't stood against the evil, hasn't tried to preserve the good. The church actually has gone silent. Back to Matt. Here's what he says. Well, here we are. In response to the mob summer of riots, pastors gave BLM sermons and promoted Blackout Tuesday. The world said, wear a mask, and most churches played along. The world said, close your church, and churches played along. Of course, using the spirit of the age creed. Out of an abundance of caution in these unprecedented times. The media said there's war in Ukraine, and so the American church goes all in with Ukraine. War in Ethiopia? Eh, never heard of it. They have a weak social media game. Most American churches are desperate to be relevant, and thus are pushed by the current thing. In an attempt to show the world how loving they are, most Christians don't want to force the madness of the world back in its place of irrelevancy. Why fight the spirit of the age when we can sing Elevation and Bethel songs on Sunday and then wonder why the world has gone mad? Why has the world gone mad? Because the organization that ought to be leading the resistance to the world is instead of is, is instead hoping to appease the world through compliance. Matt from Iowa said that. Now, he does have a point. You may not agree with everything he said, but where has the church in all this? And is it right for the church to stand strong? Or as I said at the top of the program, since Christ died in weakness, aren't we supposed to be weak? Because when we're weak, we're strong. Why did Paul say that? Because when you're weak, you depend on God. The strong don't depend on God quite often. This is why Jesus said it's difficult for a rich man to get into heaven. Thankfully, he didn't say it was impossible because if that were the case, nobody in America would make it. But it's the, the implication here is, is that When you're rich, when you're powerful, you tend not to rely on God. You tend to rely on yourself. This isn't universal, obviously, because plenty of rich people are Christians. The point here is, though, is that it tends to dull us to God. If if we can make it on our own, why do we need God, in other words? Now, there is something out there known as Christian nationalism. That's acting as if politics is our savior rather than Jesus. Now, as you know, as I've said many times before, we have to be involved in politics. Why? Because we love people. The way you love people politically is you put laws in place that protect them. And we have to work to protect the innocent and maintain the freedom to live and preach the gospel. But we should not swell our concern to madness. We talked about this last week. We should not swell our concern to madness. That's a C.S. Lewis line. By thinking that we can bring heaven on earth through politics, we can't. Only Jesus will bring heaven to earth when he comes back to quarantine evil. But still, that doesn't mean we ought not be involved just because some people are over-involved or because some people think it's their savior. It isn't. But that doesn't mean we ought not be involved. 
Yeah, there are people who are Christian nationalists out there. I don't know how many there are, but they're out there. On the other hand, I also see several Christian intellectuals accusing Christians who are involved in politics as power-hungry people who are merely trying not to lose something they have. These Christians, these intellectuals say, want to keep power so they don't lose something, so they can stay ahead of the less fortunate, when the Bible tells us to care for the less fortunate. These, uh, these people say that, these intellectuals say that Christ conquered the world through weakness, so we should too. This is almost like some who subscribe to critical theory. They say it's all about power and power is bad. And Russell Moore, who uh, is the public theology project leader at Christianity Today, wrote a column uh, a month or so ago called The Cross Contradicts Our Culture Wars. The victory of Christ was won by crucifixion, not societal conquest. And right after the break, we're going to get into this and evaluate it a little bit. Is, is more right about this? Should Christians, since Jesus was always in a state of weakness, should Christians also be continually in a state of weakness because when we're weak, we are strong? Should we try and conquer the world merely through weakness? Is it ever right to use power in politics to get something done? That's what we'll evaluate. And then we're going to get to some other questions like, how do you deal with scoffers? Uh, how do you respect your parents who have different values than you do? How do you honor your father and mother? Those kind of things. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network, 180 stations across America, and also the podcast called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We're back in two minutes. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're never going to hear this on NPR. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. The podcast is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And uh, this weekend, ladies and gentlemen, I'm at Calvary Chapel down in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and also another church. I think it's called Trinity Church, if I'm not mistaken. It's on our website, crossexamine.org. Go to events. If you're anywhere in Puerto Rico, would love to see you this weekend doing an event on Saturday. Today, if you're listening to it on Saturday, doing an event uh, tomorrow, uh, actually at two churches, the morning services at Calvary Chapel and then an evening service at Trinity Church. In fact, uh, we'll be doing I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in the morning and If God, Why Evil in the evening. So check all that out. Go to our website. Also want to mention, I'll be here locally in Charlotte, actually, Weddington, North Carolina, on the 22nd of May at Southbrook Church. Uh, we'll be introducing I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. And then on several Wednesday nights, we're going to be going through the entire I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist presentation five Wednesday nights in a row. And we're going to be filming it. We're going to be updating our I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist uh DVD set, an MP4 set, ultimately through this, we hope to anyway. So if you want to be a part of that, go to crossexamine.org, click on events, and you will see it there. Just south of Charlotte, North Carolina, about 20, 30 minutes. That's where we are uh, at Southbrook Church. So today we are talking about 
this idea, is it ever right for Christians to use power, particularly politically? And we've talked about what appear to be two extremes. Some Christians who think using power all the time uh, and putting politics over Christ, uh, they, are, they might be considered Christian nationalists, that they're their country is even, it seems more important than their savior. Now, maybe they wouldn't put it that way, but it almost seems that in many cases it might actually be that way. And on the other hand, you have people like Russell Moore, who used to work for the Southern Baptist Convention and is now at Christianity Today, writing a column uh, that seems to say that you ought not use power in politics. Uh, the title of the column is The Cross Contradicts Our Culture Wars. We'll put this link in the show notes here. And... Uh, the subtitle is, The Victory of Christ Was Won by Crucifixion, Not Societal Conquest. Now, I can't read the whole column here. I don't have time for that, but you can read it for yourself. A couple of things he said uh, is this. He, said, he says, often the most contentious aspects of American life center on the question, who is trying to take America away from us? And he says, whether that be immigrant uh, caravans overwhelming the border, that's one thing he mentions. He also mentions American elites developing a global pandemic to control the population with vaccines or the rhetoric of Satan worshiping pedophile rings at the highest level of government. I haven't heard that one too much, but apparently people are saying that. Anyway, Eric Metaxas, uh, who has been on this program several times before, and is behind the new movie, at least partially, with Dinesh D'Souza called 2,000 Mules. I haven't seen this movie yet. I need to see it. Uh, anyway, he, Eric Metaxas, by the way, that movie 2,000 Mules has to do with uh, video and cell phone evidence that there were people going illegally to drop boxes in the five swing states, Arizona, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, which may have actually swung the election. I don't know. I haven't seen the movie yet. I'm going to see it soon. Uh, in any event, uh, you might want to look into that, 2,000 Mules. Metaxas says this about Moore's contention that some Christians or other Americans are concerned about the border being open. He says this, and Metaxas says this in a column uh, on the stream. Again, we'll put it uh, in the show notes. He says, more cannot fathom that letting strangers flow secretly into our cities might lead to bad results for everyone, including and especially the poorest people in those cities, nor that communities are being devastated by the epidemic of drugs coming across our borders. I might also add terrorists can be coming across our borders as well. Anyway, Metaxas goes on to say this, the tagline of the article tells us more. The article that Moore has written, Russell Moore. The tagline, as I mentioned, is the victory of Christ was won by crucifixion, not societal conquest. And here's what Metaxas says about that. He says, those who fight for the unborn or for free and transparent elections or for freedom of speech or against anti-biblical ideologies working to destroy their children are actually just conquistadors in it for themselves in their jug-headed tribe. So he's kind of, in a mild way, mocking what Moore is saying. Yeah, these people can't be uh, really concerned about life or can't really be concerned about freedom of speech or concerned about what's being taught their kids. They just want power for power's sake. They just want to take over. Well, Moore says this in his column. 
Culture wars and the outrage cycles might fuel ratings and clicks and fundraising appeals, but they cannot reconcile sinners to a holy God. They cannot reunite a fragmented people. They cannot even make us less afraid in the long run. I'm going to address this directly in a few minutes, but here's what Metaxas says partially about this. He says, so if in advocating for the unborn or for religious liberty or for the Constitution, you believed you were bringing your Christian faith into the public square for the general good, Moore has he- it was here to correct that, to patiently explain that people like you are merely culture warriors brawling in a vulgar attempt to advance your own carnal self-interest and that of your tribalistic group. Well, is that really the case? Because it seems to me when Moore says that culture wars and outrage cycles might fuel ratings and clicks and fundraising appeals, by the way, that's true what he says there, it might do that, but they cannot reconcile sinners to a holy God. Well, he might be right about that too, but my point is that's not the point. That's not the point of why you advocate for certain political positions necessarily. If you don't want unborn children or now even born children slaughtered, well, your goal by putting a law which says you ought not do that in place isn't trying to reconcile sinners to a holy God. It seems to me that Moore is conflating two different things. I mean, he is conflating actually the work of salvation, and the work of government. Putting good laws in place to protect innocent people from evil does not contradict the cross. In fact, Paul in Romans 13 says that protecting people from evil is the exact purpose of government. So it seems to me that Moore says, well, look, if a law can't save somebody, then then don't be concerned with the law. How how does that follow? Well, we'll get into it more. Let Let me read more from what Metaxas says about this. And let me admit that Moore might be right to a certain extent that some people um, might have wrong motives for what they, for what for their political positions. But that doesn't mean that other people can't have right motives. In fact, um, here is what Moore says: Good Friday should remind us that as Christians, adding more outrage and anger to the culture already exhausted by its own is not how God defines wisdom and power. All right, let me say something to this. You're right to a certain extent, except when God told us to be angry, yet do not sin. Except when Jesus went after the politicians of his day, which appears to be in an angry way he did that, because they were neglecting the more important matters of the law. That's what he did in Matthew chapter 23. In fact, the verse to remember is Matthew 23, 23. Easy to remember. When he goes after the Pharisees, who, by the way, were the politicians of his day. The Pharisees, many of them were on the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, that or to whom Rome delegated much of the political authority too. They made the laws for Israel. And Jesus went after these people. Yes, they were religious leaders, but they were also political leaders. And Jesus told them that you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. You're tithing your spices, but you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Justice, faithfulness, these kind of things. Well, it seems to me that's what's going on in our culture today. We are telling people what light bulbs they can and can't use, but we're not telling them don't murder your children. We are neglecting the weightier matters of the law. And if Jesus 
were to come to earth today, I think he would give our Congress, our politicians, the same, the same thrashing. You're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. So for us to just say, well, we ought not be concerned about that, because, whoa, gee, anger is always wrong. No, it's not always wrong. Sometimes it is, it is something that is validated, that is necessary, that is appropriate. But we still need to do it without sinning. Be angry and yet do not sin. Metaxas, Metaxas asks these two questions. He says, let's ask two questions. And by the way, he's about to refer here to Wil, Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer. And if anyone is an expert on Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer, it's Eric Metaxas because he's written lengthy biographies on both of these people. As you know, William Wilberforce virtually single-handedly stopped the slave trade in Britain before we stopped it here in America. Here's what Metaxas asks in his column responding to Russell Moore. Were William Wilberforce and the evangelicals of his time merely warring politically in working against the slave trade? And was Bonhoeffer's heroic call for German Christians to stand against the Nazis really somehow about societal conquest? More naturally follows the current fashion in lionizing what these two figures did, but this, too, is perfectly subjective. We cannot forget how viciously Wilberforce and Bonhoeffer were criticized by their own political enemies, usually social elite Christians, who similarly accused them of vulgarity, sullying their faith by dragging it into the realm of politics where it had no business, by engaging in precisely what such Moore, and Hunter, somebody who Moore quotes, today denounces culture warring that contradicts the cross. Unquote. Now, Russell Moore and those who agree with him may be right about the motives of many people in politics, actually on both sides of the political aisle. But there are many problems, I think, and Metaxas has pointed some of this out, with Russell Moore's reasoning here. And I want to point out some of these problems beyond what even Metaxas has said. And we're going to do that right after the break. Before I do, I want to let everyone know we are going back to Israel the vaccine mandate is over. The testing will be over as of May 20th in Israel. So you're not going to get tested when you get there for COVID. We're going with Eli Shukran, the Israeli archaeologist who discovered the Pool of Siloam, excavated most of the city of David. It's a VIP tour. We're staying at the best places. And we're going to places that only Eli can take us. So go to crossexamine.org. Click on events. You'll see it. It's this September. I hope you can join us. And we're back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy is this July, late July in Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. Easy for me to say. Cincinnati, Ohio. And if you want to be a part of it, if you want to learn how to present apologetics and answer questions... And you want to be taught by people like Greg Kokel, Jay Warner Wallace, Elisa Childers, Abdu Murray, Richard Howe, myself, and several others. You just need to go to crossexamine.org and click on events. You'll see CIA there. You better apply soon. When we run out of room and we only take 60 students, we're done. We're full. 
So check it out, the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy, CIA. Okay, we're talking about, can Christians actually use power? And it seems uh, that Russell Moore, who writes for Christianity Today and, and has is the leader of their public theology group there, uh, seems to say in a recent article, no, you shouldn't be using power in politics. The way is through the cross, through weakness. Let me say a few things about this. First of all, I think he's painting with quite a broad brush uh, and judging people people's motives. I mean, yeah, you can make an educated guess, but unless you people tell you directly what their motives are, you really don't know. So that's one problem there. Secondly, even if you know that a certain percentage of a group of Christians have nefarious and ungodly motives for power, that doesn't mean that you can apply that insight to specific people. It's an illegitimate use of statistics to say that because, say, oh, 20% of Christians think this way, that all Christians think this way, certainly, or that you as a Christian must think this way. No, unless the number is 100%. That all Christians think this way. You can't make judgments from aggregate data to individuals. You don't know what's on that person's heart. That person may sincerely and hopefully truly believes that murdering the unborn is something we ought not do and is working diligently as we have been for the past 50 years and now it looks like it'll bear some more fruit other than just some state laws that have been changed by the overturning of Roe v. Wade. These people may be doing God's work. And I think they are when they're trying to protect innocent people. So to say, well, they're just, they're just power-hungry uh, people who are just grabbing power to somehow maintain their own social status in society, I think is unfair. And you can't say that from aggregate data. Nor does it mean, by the way, that power is wrong. The third problem with it is this. And maybe it's best illustrated by asking some questions. How does it follow that since Christ went to the cross in weakness as a sacrifice, that Christians should never use power in any way? How does that follow? Would it be better for Christians to not have power? Why? Would non-Christians govern better? Who said, are only atheists or other non-Christians qualified to run the country? Where does it say that? Where does it say that Christians cannot or should not be involved in politics or have political influence? And don't bring up the separation of church and state. That's an irrelevant objection. First of all, it's not in the Constitution. Secondly, even if it was, it would say nothing about citizens trying to legislate morally because all laws legislate morality. Every law declares one behavior right and the opposite behavior wrong. You can't think of a law which doesn't do that. Everybody's trying to legislate a moral position. We are not legislating religion when we say it's wrong to murder innocent people. Now, it, it, it's congruent with good religion, but you're not telling people that they have to be a believer and they have to engage in certain rites and rituals when you say you ought not murder innocent people. You're trying to impose a moral position. Whether that comes from religion or not isn't really the point. So everyone's trying to legislate religion. Or I should say morality, not religion. We're not trying to tell people they have to be Christians to live in this country. But we are saying you ought not murder innocent people. And that's what we're trying to do. And should we not have political influence? I mean, because, because Jesus died in weakness, does that mean the allies should have allowed the Nazis to take over their countries? How does that follow? Does it follow that since Christ died in weakness, everyone should allow tyrants to take over their government? 
Does it follow that since Christ died in weakness, if a rapist comes into your house, you ought to be weak and not resist him? I mean, where do you come up with this stuff? Jesus himself actually told his disciples, if you don't have a sword, go get one. Why do you think he said that? It wasn't so he could make Swiss cheese or cheese and crackers. Self-defense is a justifiable case of using violence. It's also justifiable in a just war. It's also justifiable in capital punishment by a just government. There are purposes for violence that God actually condones. So, since Christ died in weakness, does it follow that we ought not work for government that will protect the weak? I mean, should we hope that we get a government like North Korea rather than, say, South Korea because Christ died in weakness? No, none of this follows. Now, to be fair to Russell Moore, it's one column, okay? Maybe he didn't intend for someone like me to ask all these questions, and maybe if he were here today, he would push back and say, no, I didn't mean it that way. Okay, fine. But I personally think, excuse me, Russell Moore, again, is conflating two different things. He's conflating salvation and government. As I mentioned earlier, putting good laws in place to protect the innocent people from evil does not contradict the cross. In fact, if the Bible is God's word, and it is, we are told that government is put in place precisely to do that, to protect innocent people from evil. It's not there to necessarily guide people to Christianity. That's not the main purpose of government. We hope it's friendly to Christianity. We hope it allows religious freedom, which is another reason we have to be involved in politics, because without religious freedom, we can't legally preach or practice the gospel. And if you think it's better in North Korea than in America to be a Christian, you haven't been thinking about this enough, (laughs) okay? The fifth problem, by the way, or am I on four or five, with with this kind of, of, of reasoning is that it's self-defeating and hypocritical to say that Christians should not have any power. If Christians are not to have any political power or even any political influence, if weakness is our goal, then Russell Moore should stop trying to influence politics by his columns. He should resign his position as the leader of the public theology project at, at, at Christianity Today and let those who want to kill babies, indoctrinate children in gender madness, and close down churches, he ought to let those people take over. No, this is just hypocritical and self-defeating. Number six, and maybe this I ought to state it at the top, because Russell Moore is on to something to a certain extent when he said power can be a problem. It can be. I agree. In fact, sex, money, and power, as we've said many, many times on this program, can lead you down the path of destruction. But just because something can be abused doesn't mean Christians should avoid it. It means Christians should use it properly. Sex, money, and power can be abused, but see how long civilization lasts if you completely avoid sex, money, and power. It can't be done. You you need to procreate. You need money. You need power to keep a civilization together. Without it, you'll have chaos, you'll have anarchy, you'll have theft, you'll have violence. So again, just because somebody can abuse power doesn't mean that Christians can't use it properly. 
And that's why, by the way, the founders of our government, which were predominantly Christians, set up three branches of government to ensure that any one group of government or every, any one section of government didn't have too much power. They, there were checks and balances. And by the way, they're not co-equal branches of government. The branch that is supposed to be the branch that has the most power is the legislative branch. Why? Because it has the closest connection to the people. And it can impeach the other two branches. The legislature can impeach the president and the judiciary. But the president and the judiciary can't impeach the legislature. So the legislature, by definition, is supposed to be the most powerful. But there are checks on that as well by the executive and the judiciary branch or the judicial branch. Finally, let me point this out. That another problem with this idea that Christians ought not use power or have power you can't take care of the poor and disadvantaged if you have no power. Obviously, if you have power, you can take care of the poor and disadvantaged better than if you have no money and no power. So, again, maybe Russell Moore didn't think this completely through. Maybe he has some counters to what I've said or what Eric Metaxas have said. But I think this whole idea, this whole motif that many who claim to be Christians, who are siding more with the left on some of these issues, they haven't considered, okay? Power by itself is not a bad thing. It's a good thing, just like sex and money, but they have to be used properly in the proper context. All right, let me get to some of your questions now. One comes from Mike, who writes this. After reading Proverbs... Uh, chapter 9, about scoffers, he says, how much effort do we spend with them in discussion? How do we differentiate between someone averse to Christianity and the one who is a real scoffer? He says, I have found that they move quickly to anger and persecution or name-calling. Sounds like I am putting razor blades in the shoes <laughs> instead of pebbles. Well, here's what he's referring to. He's obviously referring to Greg Kokel, who always says you ought to ask questions of people to put a pebble in their shoe. You know, the question's like, well, what do you mean by that? And how'd you come to that conclusion? You know, and then maybe offer a counter to their opinion when you say something like, well, have you ever considered? Have you ever considered the Bible hasn't been changed throughout the centuries? Here's why. Or have you ever considered when you say, um, when you say there is no truth, that that's actually a truth claim, right? Okay, so he's, he's training here on what, on what uh, Greg Kokel has taught us through his book Tactics. But it, we're putting razor blades in shoes instead of pebbles. Well, how do you deal with scoffers? Well, let's, let's look at what Jesus said here. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, a, verse, a section often taken out of context, he said this, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. By the way, notice when he says you hypocrite, that's a judgment. You notice that? He's not telling us not to judge. More on that in a minute. Anyway, he says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. 
Oh, he's causing, calling people dogs and pigs and what? We'll, we'll, we'll uncover this or unpack it right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network website, crossexamine.org. We're back in two minutes. Imagine if there were a fun way to get your kids more interested in God and virtue. Imagine if there were a fun way to evangelize your neighbors who aren't necessarily interested in Christianity and wouldn't appreciate the direct approach. Well, there is a way of doing it, ladies and gentlemen. The new book I wrote with my son, Zach Turek, called Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. We go, to, we go through several of the most successful movie franchises in the past several decades and show you how you can use movies to actually point to Christianity and to point your neighbors or your children or your family or your friends to Christ, the ultimate hero that many of these superhero movies point to. So check out the book, Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. We're going to have another uh, podcast on this in in a week or two coming up, but I just wanted you guys to do that or to know about it if you haven't heard about it yet. And if you do get the book and you like it, it would really help us to put a positive review up on Amazon or wherever you put reviews. That would be helpful. Thanks for doing that. If you don't like the book, you don't even know where it. you bought it. Don't, don't put any reviews up. <laughs> also, if you like this podcast, uh, if you go to wherever you listen to podcasts, put a positive review up there. That helps it move it up the charts as well. The podcast is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. So uh, check it out wherever you hear podcasts. By the way, there is a website for the book. It's called HollywoodHeroesBook.com, HollywoodHeroesBook.com, if you want to learn more. All right, let's go back to how do you handle scoffers. I mentioned that Jesus talks about the fact that if you throw your pearls to pigs, they're going to trample you under their feet. And this is what the proverb says, by the way. Mike, the... the uh, the guy who wrote in said he was quoting Proverbs, let's see, it's Proverbs 9, 7, and 8, which says this, whoever corrects a mocker invites insults. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. This is why, by the way, I rarely comment on things on social media, ladies and gentlemen, because so many people on social media are just mockers. They're not interested in the truth. They just want to mock. They want to kick up a lot of dust. They want to validate their anti-God worldview by tearing you down. And so there's not really much utility in it. If you do get engaged with a mocker, be as kind and genteel as possible because Not to convert that person, that person isn't interested, but to convert maybe the people watching. So how do you deal with mockers? For me, generally, I ignore them. But if you are engaged, be overly kind. Paul talks about this in Romans 12, where he says, if you treat uh, people who are ill toward you with kindness, it's like dumping hot coals on their heads. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Uh, Peter also talks about when you treat those who are unkind to you in a kind way, then uh, you might win them over. Now, in many cases, you won't. So how do you deal with mockers? For me, generally, I just move on to people who are interested. 
Now, here's a good way that you can detect whether someone is a mocker. You can ask the questions that I typically ask people uh, if I sense there's hostility in what they're saying. I ask them, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And see what they say. If they hesitate or say no, the problem is not in their head, it's in their heart. They don't want it to be true. They don't want Christianity to be true. Or you might say, if Jesus rose from the dead, would you follow him? Because sometimes people have an allergy to Christianity because they've been wronged by Christians. And so they don't want to have anything to do with Christianity. Let me remind you what John Dixon has said about this in his book, Bullies and Saints. If someone plays Beethoven poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Beethoven. You blame the person playing Beethoven. Similarly, if somebody plays Christ poorly, you don't blame Christ. You blame the Christian. But just because Christians don't act always in a true and beautiful way doesn't mean Christ isn't true and beautiful. He is. Newsflash, Christianity is not about Christians. Christianity is defined and exemplified by Jesus. So keep your eyes on Jesus. So you might want to ask people, if somebody plays Beethoven poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Beethoven. Similarly, if somebody plays Christ poorly, you don't blame Christians. Don't let Christians keep you away from Jesus. So if you have a mocker, you may want to ask him that question if you are engaged with them. Otherwise, as is said in another context, as Jesus said to his the 70 he sent out in the Gospel of Matthew, if you bring the truth to a village and they throw you out, kick the dust off your sandals and move on. There's too many people who are open. So go to the people who are open. By the way, as you know, when Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judged, he's not telling you not to judge. He's telling you to take the speck out of your brother's eye. That involves making a judgment. He's simply saying, get that problem out of your life first so you can better help your brother. It would be ridiculous to say don't make judgments. Number one, it's a judgment itself. Number two, you'd be dead already if you didn't make judgments. You make a thousand judgments every day between right and wrong, good and evil, safe choices from dangerous choices. You couldn't exist without making judgments. Atheists make judgments, by the way. They judge there's no God. They judge Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They judge the Bible's not telling the truth. They judge that that uh, there is no objective purpose or meaning to life. When you die, you're just going to become worm food. It's all meaningless. Have a nice day. These are all judgments, ladies and gentlemen. The question isn't whether or not you can make judgments. The question is, are your judgments true? That's the question. By the way, notice Jesus uses the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye. Why do you think he was using that? Because he was a carpenter, right? He's using what he's familiar to him and to others. You ever get a speck in your eye? You just can't go on, right? You got to get that thing out. You get a speck in your eye, you just can't go, go about your day. You got to work to get that thing out of your eye. It's irritating. So he's using an analogy that people would understand, that he would understand. Another question you can ask scoffers, particularly when it comes to sexual immorality, you could ask them, if God wanted you for your ultimate good to refrain from cer certain sexual behaviors, would you do so? I mean, if the God of the universe wanted you to do that for your own good, would you do it? If they say no, they're not following Jesus. They don't want to follow Jesus. They want to follow themselves. See, that's the problem. And I notice it seems like many in 
progressive Christianity, um, they they appear to be leaving their their belief in Jesus rather than their sexual sins. Today's progressive Christians are sexual sinners who have repented of being believers. By contrast, somebody like David was a believer who repented of his sexual sins. Do you see the difference here? One is still a believer and repents of his sexual sins. The other is no longer a believer because what he really wants is his sexual sin. Now, again, I can't speak for everyone. I'm simply saying I've noticed that sexual sin always seems to come up when people deconstruct from Christianity. All right, let me try and get to one more question. And I don't know if I can get to the entire uh, question here because it's quite long. But Abigail writes in and says, um, she says, how can I create a type of home that the Bible instructs without having been raised in one myself? Also, how do I demonstrate honor to my parents and grandparents in front of my children without appearing to affirm their values? And she says, part of me uh, wants to approach my pastor and ask if there is an older woman in the church that could adopt me as a spiritual daughter and give me the God-centered guidance I need as a young mother. However, I have not started this conversation because it feels disrespectful to the mother I am born with. Am I wrong in having this desire? Absolutely not. You're not wrong in having this desire, Abigail. In fact, having spiritual mentors or mentors of any kind other than your parents should not be seen as disrespect to your parents. I mean, after all, if your parents ever sent you to school, they were admitting that you need to receive instruction from other people rather than just them alone. So you're not disrespecting your parents to say that I want to be mentored by someone who's a Christian. And by the way, you have, she's, Abigail says in this letter here, this email, that she has three children of her own. So she's, she's living on her own with a, a Christian husband, and she's still struggling with honoring her parents who are not Christians. Well, you're responsible for your own home now, Abigail. Yes, you always want to honor your parents, but that doesn't mean you have to teach your kids the values that your parents uh, may have that are contrary to Christianity. In fact, that would be disrespectful of God to do so. You can still honor them in other ways and should honor them in other ways, even if they don't agree with your Christian values. But that doesn't mean you ought to honor them by dishonoring God and teaching your children values that are against God's will. So you're, you're to honor God more than you're to honor your parents, but you can still honor your parents and honor God even when your parents are not Christians. And this is true in a relationship with a husband, right? Yes, you're to submit to your husband just like Christ submits to the church, or sorry, Christ submits to the Father, but you're not to submit to your husband when he, he tells you to do something immoral. You're never supposed to do that. You have, you have a greater obligation to God than you do to your husband. And, th and this is, by the way, this is, this, is, this is illustrated in the Trinity. The husband, or let me put it this way, Jesus and the Father are equally God, but they have different functions. They have different roles. The, the, the Son willingly submits to the Father to achieve a goal. The same thing is true in a relationship. 
between a husband and a wife. The husband and the wife are equally human and made in the image of God and equally valuable, but the wife submits to her husband whenever there's a, a disagreement they can't agree on, as long as it's a moral disagreement. You're never gonna you're never gonna submit to your husband if he tells you to do something immoral. You never submit to your parents if they tell you to do something immoral. But you can still honor them in many other ways. All right, friends, great being with you. I'm Frank Turk. By the way, check out Southern Evangelical Seminary if you want to learn more about this. That's ses.edu. Ses.edu has great online classes. It's where I learned. It's where you should learn as well. And we'll see you here next week. God bless.